Well, good morning. Yeah. The bumper video is good. I agree. I like that. If you would grab your Bible today, we're going to jump right in to these verses from Hebrews chapter 12. I think they're favorites of many Christians. I, I know they are of, of mine. And we're going to look at them and then spend some minutes unpacking them together. I'd just like to welcome all of you, whether you're joining us online or in person at one of our locations, we're really, really glad that you're with us today. The text reads, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. I really love this metaphor of the Christian life as a race. I find a lot of inspiration from that. And it's, it's a common one used by the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. Let me give you just a few examples of, of what I mean. He said to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, however, I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may, here it is, finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. He, he saw his life, his Christian life, as a race. Or consider 1 Corinthians 9, where he writes to the Corinthian church, and he says, do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? And then he gives them this exhortation, run in such a way as to get the prize. He says to the Galatians, Galatians 5, verse 7, you were running a good race. Who cut in on you and kept you from obeying the truth? And then one final example, 2 Timothy chapter 4, probably the best known one, where he says in this last letter that he wrote from the Mamertine prison, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. I wish I could hear from each of you what that image, that picture of, of the Christian life being a race kind of suggests to you. But it suggests to me that this is a dynamic thing. It's not a passive thing. It says to me that the Christian life is more than kind of getting your ticket punched to heaven and then spending the rest of your life on this earth trying to get out of or stay out of as much mischief as you can and just hoping that one day you'll be washed up on the shores of heaven. No, it's not like that at all. A runner enters a race intentionally, purposefully. She enters that race with a game plan of how she's going to run the race and, and even pace herself knowing that it's a, it's a marathon, not a 100-yard sprint. Any elite runner also gives attention to the nutrition, the proper diet, and the grueling training that they need to go through. 
any runner who's been around very long also knows that somewhere in the middle of that long race, guess what? There's gonna be moments of discouragement where you have to push through the pain and keep on going toward the finish line. So if you're a disciple of Jesus today, I want you to know all of that is true for you. God has a race for you to run. He has laid it out, mapped it out in advance for you. It requires perseverance and discipline. In fact, to, to go back to one of those passages we, we looked at momentarily, 1 Corinthians 9, where he says, run in such a way as to get the prize. Then he refers to the Olympic Games. There were also many other athletic games similar to the Olympics in his day. I think Paul had probably attended some of those events in those large ancient arenas and amphitheaters. He said, everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we, us Christians, we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, he gives a personal testimony here, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. No way. I'm not, I'm not passive here. I'm not hoping I get washed up on the shores of heaven one day. I'm not hoping things turn out okay in this race. No, I don't run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body and make it my slave so that after I've preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Do you, do you sense the intensity in that? I'm not a Sunday-only Christian, Paul's saying, who goes to church because it's my obligation. Oh, I'm gonna go do my duty here. And the rest of the week, I just kind of forget Christ and the kingdom of God. Paul's saying, look, if you're going to run your race with excellence, this race God has for you, listen, it's going to consume you. You're going to wake up every day with your mind on the kingdom of God, with your mind on, hey, I get to run another day in this race that God has for me, and oh, I want to finish this course well. Now, let me ask you, does that describe your Christian life? Do you understand that this, this race you're in involves intentionality on your part? That you can actually excel in it or not? And today's text is encouraging us to keep on running that race with perseverance and with, with excellence. Now, last weekend was Grace Fellowship's 28th birthday, exactly, the 21st of March, this church is 28 years old, and oh, I thank God for all he has done. Just want, yeah, that's good. Just want you to know, though, while we applaud the Lord for all he's done, I want you to know that my eyes are not on the past. I'm not a, I'm not a person who dwells in the past at all. My eyes are on the road ahead. I'm much more excited about the future than I am about the past. But here's where I'm going with this. In these 28 years at Grace, can I tell you something? I've noticed a lot of people who once seemed to be running the race well. Honestly, they were excelling, some of them. 
But today, they're seemingly sidelined, or it appears to be out of the race altogether for all practical purposes. Oh, I can name their names. I can see their faces. Once running strong and impressively, but no more. Now, in most cases, I don't think it's because they came to a point in the road where they said, I'm just going to reject all of this. I don't think that's the case. You know what I think happened? I think they began to go down some side roads and got off the main path. I believe they began to let some things crowd in and edge Christ out. And they got a desire for some other things in life stronger than their desire for Christ and his purposes. Now listen, this is an ever-present danger and reality. Some of you know right now that this is already happening in your life. You've sensed it. You've seen it. The scripture says, so if you think you're standing firm, be careful, be careful that you don't fall. So how do we avoid that? How do we avoid this dangerous drift so that we can keep on running and finish the race God has laid out for us and to do it with excellence? Well, I think that that's where this passage is just so amazing. So let's unpack it for these few minutes we have together. I want to point out and highlight basically three things from this passage. It is so rich. Number one, this would say to any runner, is that you? You, you want to run this race with excellence? Be inspired by those who've run before you. That's right here in verse one. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Now, the question is, who is this great cloud of witnesses? Some people would say, well, hey, what you need to picture here is like a big stadium where you're the runner and there's all these people in the grandstands cheering you on, saying, way to go, keep on going. Well, I like that picture. I think that's kind of cool if that's the way it is. And honestly, I'm inspired by that. But here's the problem with that. Scripture doesn't tell us how much people in heaven know about what's going on here on earth. Oh, if you've watched It's a Wonderful Life and Clarence Oddbody and all the other angels in heaven, you know, they're fully aware of every detail on earth and they're trying to help George Bailey out. And I love that movie, but that's not the Bible. We got to be careful, folks, not to take our theology from movies and songs and uh, things like that. We've got to be careful to get it from Scripture and just keeping it real while Scripture gives a few hints here and there, it doesn't really give a clear picture of how much people in heaven are aware of what's going on down here. So I just don't think that's the meaning the writer has in mind. I think it's much more likely that this cloud of witnesses are the people he's just written about in chapter 11. Remember, Scripture always has to be read in context. That's the key. And so he's just named all this list of people who have already run their race. And I think he's looking back to them and going, look, they've already run their race. 
their lives bear witness to what our race down here can look like. So learn from their example and be inspired by them. So here's the point. His point is not that they're watching us, but that we should be watching them and what their lives bear witness to. So let me give you a few examples of how that could work. If you obey this and you watch them and get inspired by them, you could take Abel, one of the first people mentioned here. Abel acted in faith and his brother didn't. His brother was jealous and killed him. Hey, 21st century Christians, heads up. People who are faithful to the Lord can get killed. Just need to know that as you're running your race today in the Capital District and beyond. Bad things do happen to people of faith, but don't let that daunt you. It didn't daunt them, so be inspired by that as you run your race. Or take Noah as one of the witnesses. He was mocked. Considered a fool because he dared to believe what God had revealed to him. So, Christians today, you a disciple? Hey, be inspired by Moses as you run your, or Noah as you run your race. Because listen, real people of faith are sometimes going to be mocked and misunderstood. Do you feel a little misunderstood as a Christian? Do you feel marginalized a little bit in our 21st century culture? If you don't, you must be living in a cave. Because people with a Judeo-Christian worldview are often ridiculed and mocked, and our view of the world and life is becoming increasingly a point of disdain. But don't let that daunt you, because it didn't daunt Noah. Or, or take Abraham and his life. He trusted in the promise of God for years, even though he didn't see it coming about. Is that, does that describe any of you? Do any of you... Have you been praying for things and boy, so far they haven't materialized? Or maybe you feel like God gave you a promise long ago and you, boy, boy, witness in your spirit, you just really believe, but so far you haven't seen it happen. Guess what, 21st century Christians? According to this, being a genuine person of faith does not mean that you will never have doubts but you keep on persevering and you learn to doubt your doubts. So learn from Abraham's witness that when you wait on God, his timing is always perfect. Or here's one. How about Sarah? Let her inspire you. She struggled along for years without seeing the promise of God fulfilled. She lived with a very imperfect husband. Could I get a testimony today? Could I, you know, is there anybody here, anybody married who said, look, I've got a really imperfect husband. You need to be careful with that, all right? The only woman I know has a perfect husband is Debbie Keener, all right? I, 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 but some of you have imperfect husbands, spouses. Do you realize that Abraham, her husband, lied to total strangers in Egypt, telling them she was his sister rather than his wife. And you know why that he did that? To save his own skin rather than protect her dignity. What a bum! What a bum! And yet she lived with that imperfection. They worked through it. She kept on believing God, and she ended up as a model of faith in the faith hall of faith. We could go on and on. Let's just take one more. Moses. 
man. God gave Moses a task that was impossible. Are you kidding me? Lead two million Hebrew slaves out of slavery in Egypt? So Christians today, if God's given you an assignment and it feels overwhelming, like you're weighing over your, well, over your head, listen, you can learn from Moses that God reward, rewards faithfulness. And so the list goes on and on of people of faith that we can be inspired by. Now, everybody I've just named is a biblical character. But I would suggest to you that you also need some people on your list of witnesses who are alive today or maybe have been alive in your lifetime. Don't blurt them out. But if I ask you for your list of heroes and heroines that inspire you today, would you be able to list some men and women on that list? You see, here's the problem. Sometimes the Sarahs and Abrahams in Scripture and all these great men and women we read about, they seem so far away, so distant. I mean, and after all, weren't they breathing a celestial air that we don't breathe? Not really, but that's the way it can feel at times. So we need some current living men and women that we look up to and draw inspiration from. I hope you have some. We just listened to an awesome testimony about how Chris looked to Joe Riley and honestly, God, by his grace, used Joe in Chris's life as a living witness to help guide him into a flourishing future. Do you have people like that in your life? Billy Graham was one of those for me. I looked to him as a person of integrity who had the amazing ability to keep the main thing the main thing, although he could have gone down so many side roads. Another one, a hero for me in the faith was Dr. Lewis Drummond. You know what? He was the first person that I ever saw who had brilliant scholarship coupled together with a passionate fervent daily walk with Christ. I had seen scholars before, and I had known people who loved Jesus passionately, but you know what? I, in my own life, had never seen those put together in one person until Lewis Drummond. It lit me up. I said, wow, I want to be like that. I want to love God with my mind, and I want to love him with all my soul and passion as well. I hope you have men and women in your life like that. But just remember one thing before we move on. All of these living heroes have feet of clay. Are you hearing that? So don't let it daunt you when one of the men or women you look up to today, still alive, you find out, wow, they're imperfect. Hear me, they're all imperfect. None of the biblical characters were perfect either, but that does not nullify their faith in God. All of God's servants are imperfect. That's the only kind he uses because that's the only kind he has to work with. Are you hearing me? So don't let that wreck your journey when you find out that someone you looked up to isn't totally perfect you can still catch inspiration from certain aspects of their life. I love verse 39 of chapter 11. It says, And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised. What in the world does that mean? 
it means that none of us get it all here and now. Hope you hear that in your race. Nobody gets every prayer answered the way they want it answered here and now. Nobody has perfect relationships. Nobody is exempt from pain and disappointment. So Christians, learn from that and keep on persevering. Jesus said to the church in Ephesus in Revelation 2, you have persevered and have endured hardships for my sake and have not grown weary. You've endured them for my name, he says. Do you ever grow weary? Can I give a testimony? I do. Oh, I get weary. And I wonder sometimes, God, are you working? God, why are my prayers not answered the way I want them to be? Am I not praying enough? Am I praying wrongly? Are my motives wrong? Am I not mature enough, enough yet? What am I doing that's messing this up and I don't seem to be getting through? Why does the life of a disciple have to be so stinking hard? And just when I'm in the peak of my pity party, God, doggone it, I look back at chapter 11 and I go, man, and others were tortured. I've never been tortured for my faith. Not accepting their release in order that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experience mockings and scourgings. I've never been scourged. I must have it pretty good. Yes, and also chains and imprisonment. I've never been thrown in jail for my faith in Jesus. Wow, God must like me. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. I've never been sawn in two, thank God. They were tempted. They were put to death with a sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. I've never had to put on some animal skin and go hide out in a hole in the ground because of my faith. Wow, I must have a pretty good life. When you're in the midst of your pity party, maybe... You need to think about that. Oh, I know life struggles are real. The pain is real. But you probably got it pretty good. Let their example inspire you. The big takeaway is they kept on exercising faith in God even when life wasn't goosebumps and glory every day. They weren't just fair-weather believers who trusted God when the sun was shining and the birds were singing and times were good. No, they trusted God when their race got hard and when they hit Heartbreak Hill and when the sun wasn't shining and it was confusing and difficult and friends betrayed them and stabbed them in the back. They kept on trusting God. So be inspired by that. That's just what mature disciples do. Okay? So the next thing he says is not only be inspired by those who've gone before, but disengage. And we're going to be real quick with this. Disengage from anything that would hold you back and weigh you down. He talks here about let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. Now, I think most of us, when we read that, we fixate 
on the sin part, the sin which so easily entangles us. And don't get me wrong, that's very real. By the way, when I mentioned earlier those men and women in my mind over the last 28 years who once were running brilliantly, it seemed, and yet today seem to be either sidelined, hobbled, or for all apparent reasons, out of appearances, out of the race altogether, I can tell you for sure, because I know their story, I can tell you for sure that some of them were ambushed by besetting sins that conquered them and mastered them. Sexual sins, monetary greed, power trips, abysmal selfishness that caused them to make horrible decisions. The list is huge of sins that can entangle us and wreck our progress. So hear the warning. Oh, don't dismiss this warning loud and clear. Lay aside all of that stuff if that's what's holding you down. But the part I'd rather focus on most today is that every encumbrance part. Some of your translations may say every weight or everything that hinders. It's anything, not just sinful things, anything that would hinder your progress. I believe that's where many of us are getting tripped up. Now think with me here. Think deeply. It's not things that are necessarily sinful or downright wrong that often trip us up. It's just things that aren't the best. Are you with me here? Think about this. Did you ever notice that when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, he was not tempted to do a single thing that was wrong per se if done with the right motive for the glory of God? Now, go with me here. Is it wrong to turn a stone into bread? I've never seen a commandment against that. Have you? There's no, no commandment whatsoever. So it's not inherently wrong. It's not wrong per se to do that. Is it wrong for Jesus to kind of pull a stunt and have people recognize him as the Son of God? He is the Son of God. One day they're going to recognize him. Every knee will bow. Every tongue confess. Is that wrong per se, if done for the glory of God, the right motive? Is it wrong for him to be invited to rule the world? He will. Right now, according to 1 John 5, 19, the devil is in charge of the world. He is ruling in this world. But one day Jesus will indeed rule. Here's what I'm saying. The most subtle attacks in your life are the things that in and of themselves are legitimate. They're not inherently wrong, but we're tempted to pursue them in a wrong way for a wrong purpose. A couple of examples. Money. Is money evil? If you think it is, you haven't read your Bible. Money is a wonderful tool. It's a horrible master. That's why scripture says not money, but the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. So it's not wrong to have money or even make money at all. In fact, it's a good thing to do. But if it becomes your consuming passion, you've just turned it into a sin. How about success? Is success wrong? 
Absolutely not. The Bible even gives formulas for success. Do this, do that, you'll be successful. But what's your motive? Is it to glorify God or glorify you? Is it to build God's kingdom or your kingdom? How about hobbies? There are dozens and dozens of hobbies that are just fine things to do. There's nothing wrong with them. They're definitely not sinful. But I know people who pursue hobbies, and boy, it's become far more than some little therapeutic outlet that takes a little bit of time. It's consuming their life when the only thing worthy of your life is the kingdom of God. This is a hard one for a lot of Christians. We've got to understand as we run our race, we need to ask with everything, is this diminishing my zeal and my desire for God and his glory, even if it's not wrong in and of itself? And there are numerous things in my life that God has nudged me, you need to lay this aside. Oh, it's not evil, it's not wrong, but it was becoming too important to me. And through the years, you have to lay those aside because it's hindering your progress in the race. So disengage from anything that would hold you back and weigh you down. There's one final thing, and that's here in verse two. Fix your eyes on Jesus. It says here, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. That you know, as I read chapter 11, what I'm most struck by, really, are not the people that are in the list, but the people who could have been or perhaps should have been in the list, but they aren't there. Cain should have been in the list, but his relationship with God was kind of on his own terms. He ended up killing his brother out of anger and trying to hide it. Cain's eyes were fixed on the wrong thing. Esau, you talk about a talented guy, a skilled hunter, someone who would be a man's man. I think he should have been on the list. Firstborn of Isaac, deserved to get the birthright blessing by his birth order. But Esau wanted everything easily and cheaply, so he squandered his birthright for the fleeting satisfaction of a meal. Esau's eyes were fixed on the wrong thing. I, I think King Saul should have been on that list. Well, you talk about a man's man, a leader's leader. He was appointed by God as the first king of the United Kingdom. He was amazing. If he were alive today, he'd be leading leadership seminars that would be packed with eager students. He demonstrated that God was with him and everybody recognized it. But his ego got inflated. And as a leader, Saul began to think that the normal rules didn't apply to him. His eyes were fixed on the wrong thing. And so God had to raise up a leader after his own heart, and he tore the kingdom away from Saul. His eyes were fixed on the wrong thing. So here's the practical question as we wrap up. What are your eyes fixed on? Honestly, kind of consumes you? What is first order of priority in your life when you get up on Monday morning and every day of the week? Is it Christ and his glory and his kingdom? I think we're tempted 
to fix our eyes on the problems and the difficulties and say, how can I possibly get through this? But when we fix our eyes on Jesus and seek to please him, he is the only one I know who can truly get us to the finish line. So would you do that today? Would you fix your eyes on Jesus and say, Lord, you are the author and perfecter of my faith. In other words, you're the one who got me into this in the first place, and you're the one and the only one who will get me to the finish line. Christ follower, as I close, can I just blow your mind for one moment here? Oh, let's buckle your seatbelt. Jesus Christ is more committed to you than you are to him. That's true. Jesus Christ is more committed to you than you are to him. No, I did not just insult you, but I did glorify Jesus. He's a lot more committed to you and me than we are to him. And so when you fix your eyes on him, he will lead you. He will produce holiness in you. He will finish the work that he started in you. As Hebrews 13, 8 said, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today, yes, and forever. You know what that means? He's always been faithful. He's faithful now, and he's gonna be faithful in the future that he is leading you into no matter what. And that's just another reason, praise be to God, that he is better than all the rest. Aren't you glad he's called you into this race? Hallelujah. It is such good news. So let's thank him. Father, thank you that Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. You got us into this. You're gonna get us to the finish line. Help us today to fix our eyes on you. So I pray specifically for all right now, and there are many who are struggling with sins that are entangling. It's like they're just wrapped around their legs, and it's hard to even take a step because of this sin that has entangled. By the power of the Holy Spirit of God, would you break those bonds right now. Help them by your grace to throw aside, to lay aside that weight and all those encumbrances and to run with heavenly oxygen today. I pray for those who have tough decisions to make about other things that aren't sins, but they're just not the best. And God, the Holy Spirit is whispering to you right now, you know what that is. I'm calling you. I'll give you the strength to do it. I know it hurts right now, but you need to put that relationship aside. You need to put that hobby. You need to put that practice that you've got going on in your life aside so it can run with endurance the race that I'm giving you. Father, I pray finally for so many of us who have our eyes fixed on the wrong thing. Honestly, if we're being honest, our eyes are on the problems. 
They really are. We're feeling the difficulty and we're going, how can I ever possibly get through this? Help us to fix our eyes on you. You're the one who got us in. You're the one who's gonna get us through. So we thank you. We praise you. We glorify your name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.